Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is your self-proclaimed pop culture pastor, Chris Perry. Today is May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, and so we're going to be talking about Star Wars and The Mandalorian, and we're going to focus on the different groups on that show and the way that they are influenced by fundamentalism. My guest today is my friend and true Star Wars fan, Joe Quigley. So <laughs> thanks for being on the show today, Joe. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Joe was someone, I guess you were in my college ministry when uh, we were I both was. in Abilene. And I uh, see I married you and your wife, Lauren, uh, which still still sticking. So, yep. you know, that's I did a good job, I guess. Put that on your resume. <laughs> yeah, I got to keep a, a tally of how many uh, successful marriages. We share a lot of nerdy interests, gaming, and, and obviously Star Wars. So uh, that's why Joe is joining us on the show today. Uh, Joe, you want to give us a little bit of your spiritual bio? Um, just take a little time. Tell us how your faith has grown and shifted over over the years. Sure thing. Um, so I was born into a missionary family. Uh, my parents still are missionaries in Guatemala. They went down in the 80s. So they've been there for over half their life now. Mm. Um, and I was in that environment uh, up until I came to the States for college. Um, my parents were independent. At one point, they were with Wycliffe Bible Translators, but uh, they, in the right at the turn of the, the century, they uh, decided that they wanted to move in a different direction, and the only way they could do that was independent. So, yeah, they've been completely <laughs> independent of the bureaucracies of the missionary uh-huh. world uh, for some okay. time. Um, and that uh, seeing both sides of that kind of shaped uh, how I see institutions and organizations to this day, actually. Mm. Um, from a, a spiritual perspective, uh, aside from the fact that my parents were missionaries, we were a pretty fundamentalist family, actually. Um, a lot of my memories of outside of church itself were spent with doing family devotionals every evening, you know, strong focus on scripture. Um, my grandfather in particular was a very well-read Christian, <laughs> very thoughtful, intelligent person, mm-hmm. and uh, very big into apologetics. So I kind of have a, a bit of a a marriage between Christianity and apologetics, uh, almost being uh, inseparable uh, mm-hmm. with respect to my my earlier memories. Yeah, get be uh, ready to give a ready defense. What's exactly. the Bible verse? Yeah, yes, or just you know countering the the culture in general, like where yeah. whatever culture that may be, because right. Guatemalan culture was far more religious than U.S. culture was even in the the nineties and early thousands. So, right. as but not the right kind of religious uh, <laughs> getting to kind of what we're going to talk about, I assume. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, in the, in around the 2018, 2019, I started to have a lot of doubts about Christianity in general. I wouldn't say my faith at the time, but just mm. Christianity as a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, long story short, um, I've essentially deconverted from Christianity altogether. I would still consider myself a very spiritual person, but not necessarily religious. Um, I still would feel comfortable calling myself a follower of Jesus, but I wouldn't be comfortable mm-hmm. putting the Christian label upon myself. Yeah, there's there's a bit of baggage to it, some of which we'll, we'll get into <laughs> today. Yeah, 
yeah we've we've kept in touch and had a lot of those conversations over the last couple of years so i know you're a thoughtful person and i, I think you have a lot to to bring to this conversation and you're having well, that outside you. perspective you can come to american christian culture a little bit as an outsider which can help quite a bit uh, when you're when you're stuck in it that's one of the things we'll talk about with fundamentalism is not being able to see outside yourself but you do have just because of your upbringing, a little bit different perspective. Yeah. So uh, the other thing we usually start with is some of your first pop culture interests, your first fandoms. What were some of the things that really got you excited uh, about the pop culture world growing up? That is a very difficult question to answer because (laughs) uh, growing up in the 90s and early thousands in a developing nation, uh, I didn't really get the internet until about 2006. Like we had dial up and stuff like that, but you couldn't connect with the wider audience as a whole Mm -hmm. and we didn't have tv because we just didn't get us tv so um i was exposed to (laughs) star wars actually is one of my earliest pop culture memories so very fitting for this episode (laughs) um whenever we would come back to the states to visit family and supporters um i remember just burning through vhs tapes of the original trilogy um Mm -hmm. and i just absolutely loved that story like it just had all the action it had uh obviously the spiritual component that definitely had you know conversations with my dad about uh star wars and and the force being kind of like a metaphor for the holy spirit if you will mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. you've all obviously got like the the jesus figure in several star wars characters uh throughout the whole franchise not just the original yeah. series uh but in those it was a very coming back from like the very old classic sci-fi and action movies of <laughs> the mm-hmm. the 1900s uh, yep. To put it that way, um, you had that very clear definition of black and white, uh, good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I wasn't permitted to watch certain other shows. It's just other pop culture things were maybe not as clearly defined black and white, good versus evil. And so they were kind of frowned upon, not banned, mm-hmm. but just you didn't feel the comfortable watching those things. So even though I didn't have a wide access to especially things like, you know, MTV and mm-hmm. just popular movies in general you could name many on previous episodes of (laughs) of this show there have been pop culture (laughs) references that uh are not native to my upbringing they are something that i learned about uh either through you (laughs) having (laughs) uh listeners may not know but i I spent a summer with uh the perrys and i learned a ton about uh, american pop culture through them um but also just going to college and being around other then kids who would Mm -hmm. quote things and just you get that uh over your head uh sensation and people have to explain things um but i would say starting around 2015 uh i became a little bit more conscious of current pop culture Mm -hmm. and have fallen in love with those things um lord of the rings would be another big thing from my past also pretty Uh, black and white good and evil yes that tracks (laughs) Well, we're not talking about all of Star Wars. I've already done one episode. Uh, I think it was like the second episode of the whole podcast talking about the Jedi and uh, some of the flaws of the way they do things. You can go and check that episode out if you want and actually have considered doing another episode about the spirituality and the force and how the force is similar to and different from uh, you know Christian uh, Holy Spirit or, or God. But today we're going to focus on The Mandalorian, uh, especially season three, which just wrapped up on Disney Plus. We're going to, as much as possible, avoid spoiling the ending, which I think should be mostly doable because the aspect of the show we're talking about, it kind of trails off. It seems like their interest in exploring that uh, gets pushed to the side by the time you get to the end. 
do we do we need to explain what this show is? I assume most people know. I think it would help. Um, to, you know, just a quick summary of of what it is because. Um, having watched all three seasons, I actually took a break, a long break between mm-hmm. finishing season two and starting season three, because um, I wasn't sure where the show is going. And then I yeah. heard people excited about season three. So that gave me some more uh, motivation to finish it. And I'm glad I finished both. Like, I, I think it's a fantastic show. It's a very different flavor from classic Star Wars, which is, I think, if you're unfamiliar with the series, that is one of the biggest things that will stand out to you is it's Star Warsy, but it's also not. And that's a very, I don't want to spoil it. So I'm going to keep that contradiction in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the first season, which is, you know, a couple of years ago now, it wasn't getting into all the Jedi and Sith and light and dark side. It was just kind of telling the story of uh, the Mandalorian is uh, the characters gets called, but his name is Din Djarin and his relationship with his um, adopted son grogu who is the same species as yoda they still will never tell us what the name of that species is which is really <laughs> frustrating uh it would help a lot for us nerds explaining stuff so you know, he's a bounty hunter and he's living this life taking care of this child who has uh, got force abilities but then as the seasons go on you're seeing a lot of his relationship with his culture as a mandalorian and how that relates to things like the jedi and yeah season three especially gets into uh, what is the status of the Mandalorian people and what does it mean to be a Mandalorian, which is one of the things we're talking about. So overall, how did you feel about about season three of the show? I'm a little torn on it because mm-hmm. like you opened with, I thought they were going in a very interesting direction. That was interesting to me because it's a little bit more personal, but mm-hmm. uh, it kind of mellowed out into your general action franchise um that being said the action was top notch um Mm -hmm. i appreciated the uh special effects um but from a story perspective it definitely felt like it was a little bit rushed to tie up loose ends and i am aware that the creators have said they don't plan this to be like a super long-running show Mm -hmm. so not knowing that i think i would have been more disappointed in how season three ended than it did but i'm glad that they have an ending in mind and they're not going to just draw things out so i can forgive a lot of shortcuts that they might have taken to kind of move the story along to set it up for season four which i'm very invested in i'm going to be uh watching that as soon as it comes out for sure Mm -hmm. yeah it it was just very it was a mixed bag i would say like it wasn't very consistent you know one of the things that at times i really like about this series is it'll just kind of do standalone episodes you know plenty of people compared it to a video game because it's like, okay, yeah, character gets a mission, he goes on the mission, he can come comes back and gets a, a reward or he gets new armor or something. Uh, and so there were some episodes in the season that were like this, especially the one uh, with Jack Black and Lizzo, where it's like, okay, <laughs> that was great. Came to this planet to do this thing, and then you spend like ninety percent of the episode with this mission that they're given, and then they come back in the last two minutes, get back to the main story, and it just, I don't know that can work, but it felt very uneven. I think part of it is also like, you're only doing eight episodes and you have this bigger story. I think that, you know, if you, this was like a 20 episode series, like they used to do, it wouldn't be that big of a deal that they were like basically filler episodes. But when it seems like, okay, we're only going to do these episodes to focus on this, this one big story about the Mandalorians. When like your second to last episode, you're doing this other silly side stuff. It just, I don't know, it, it doesn't hit quite as well. Um, there's also the episode where like the Mandalorian's not in it at all. 
Um, yeah, that one was really confusing. Yeah, it's the story of this former Imperial agent and, you know, them. And we're seeing how the New Republic is trying to, you know, reintegrate them. So the series is set for those that, you know, it's it's hard to keep track of these things. It's set after Return of the Jedi. So this is when the Empire has been defeated, but, you know, they they still linger. And, you know, it's one of those things, like, yeah, I'm certainly interested to see how the New Republic came about after Luke and Leia and Han, you know, helped defeat them. But is this the place to do that? Again, when you're only going to do eight episodes, are we going to take one to just do this? It also felt a little like they were trying to do what Andor does with that episode and we're not doing it near as well, you know, getting into the politics and stuff. Cause I mean, I loved Andor. I don't know. It doesn't have the same vibe. And so it just felt really out of place for that one episode. Yeah. Unless they're building something up for season four, it felt like it was an Andor crossover episode. Right. Um, I enjoyed it from the world building perspective, but it didn't further the Mandalorian side of things at all, other mm-hmm. than to connect some key plot details at the later half of the season. But I felt like they could have uh, wrapped that up in a segment within an episode rather than making a yeah. whole separate episode. Yep. yep. All right. Well, that's, you know, big take. There were, so, there were a lot of positives and like the overall story I thought was really interesting. We'll get into some of that, but the story, the season could have been more consistent. I, I feel like, but what we're focusing on today is Mandalorian culture and um, Din Djarin, how he feels about it and how people around him talk about what it means to be a Mandalorian. Because the main thing that we're focusing on really is the way in which Din's clan are fundamentalists. That the phrase they say all the time, this is the way, is a way of saying this is the only way to be Mandalorian. That if you don't practice your Mandalorianness, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't practice it the way that we say, according to the creed, then you're not really a Mandalorian. And so we're going to start and just think in general about fundamentalism and what that is, what we're referring to, and how it functions. Really, it's it's an American movement uh, that starts in the early 20th century. Uh, there was actually a series of essays that were published and kind of made available uh, and were spread pretty widely called The Fundamentals. It was very much a reaction to things that were happening in culture, like uh, the theory of evolution was becoming more widespread and accepted, and critical uh, biblical scholarship was was gaining traction. So, you know, these were author writers, scholars uh, initially coming from Europe. Uh, they were taking a different approach to scripture. You know, looking at it as just historical works and not just coming to it as as a book of faith, even if many of them still would have you know claimed Christianity. And really just modernism in general was was on the rise. And so fundamentalism was kind of responding, reacting to that. Although fundamentalism is also very modernist in a lot of its assumptions, which they, you know, proponents tend to tend to ignore a little bit. And really the current evangelical movement is, you know, an outgrowth of that. Um, now we don't have time to get into all the history of evangelicalism. In a lot of ways, there was you know, what we call evangelicals now, we're trying to move away from some of the harsh harshness of fundamentalism, but in a lot of ways they didn't. But what are some of the things that define fundamentalism? Well, one is the relationship to the sacred text, right? So for Christians, it's, it's the Bible. For Mandalorians, it's the creed. So what do you think of, you know, when 
you think about Christian fundamentalists, how they, how they look at the Bible, what would you see as some of the features of that, Joe? Um, in my experience, I've seen the relationship to the Bible as being almost as important as the relationship with God. Mm. Um, obviously, God isn't speaking directly to a lot of people in more conservative fundamentalist circles. So unless you're mm. in a more Pentecostal circle, the only way that you can hear from God is through the Bible. And so there's really only one way to connect with God um, directly. This is the way. <laughs> and this is the way, um, as you know, through prayer and and reading mm. the Bible. Yeah, like the Bible is the word of God. And, you know, some, like you mentioned, some fundamentalist movements are more open to the work of the spirit or God speaking, and some are very much not, which, you know, definitely was my experience, probably yours as well, that like, no, the only way that you hear from God is through the, the Bible, through these words and the words, uh, the Bible is inerrant. Uh, that's a term that didn't really exist before fundamentalism, um, but it's very much tied to it the idea that you know this is true in every single aspect there are no errors it is you know what it says is literally true i think that's another big part of it it's very literal yeah it's reading of scripture right it's responding to evolution and saying no genesis is literal history of how the earth was created so it has to be six days uh, so that's uh, very much central to how it reads the sacred text and how highly it treasures it well again in our in my experience in our movement it was the Holy Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Uh, we don't really need the Spirit, right? Uh, so just give us this book, and that will tell us all that we need to know. And the assumption also being, and we're not interpreting it. We're just reading it. All these yeah. other people, the the modernists, the, the liberal scholars, they're interpreting it. We're just reading it. Uh, and so this inability to see what you're bringing to the text is is kind of part of it as well. And I mean, also, you know, just the idea of, well, the name fundamentalism in the book, the fundamentals, it kind of focuses on like, these are the most important things. Although it seems like everything is the most important thing. Right? <laughs> there really ends up not being much room for like, well, this is, these things are debatable or negotiable. There didn't seem to be too many that really fit into that category. Uh, fundamentals can get upset about pretty much anything. Another way to think about fundamentalism uh, or just like how you understand a religious movement is to put it in terms of either a sect or a denomination. So a sect is a group that thinks, no, we are the only true Christians or Mandalorians or whatever it is. Whereas a denomination there, the idea is we are a named group within this larger group. Um, and so the more fundamentalists, the more you're going to think we are just a sect, um, but, you know, if you get away from that, you're willing to recognize, okay, these people, they have a different name, they follow some different traditions, but they're, they're still part of this group. So I mentioned before, I grew up in Churches of Christ, which connects with a lot of this. Historically, you know, we weren't as much part of the fundamentalist movement in the same way, but I think a lot of the assumptions are the same. And so I believe you did too. So where did you see that perspective in the way that we did things. What were some of your experiences? Any of this ring true aside from the stuff we already mentioned with the Bible? Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, before I answer that question, something that, that came to mind that uh, I know, unfortunately, both Baptists and Church of Christers will find offensive is uh, now that I've kind of taken a step back from that fundamentalist world, mm -hmm. I see a, a strong overlap between the two groups. Um, mm -hmm. And what you were saying about sects versus denominations I think uh, really resonated uh, with me because 
a lot of the the problematic things that we'll be talking about, you know, uh, a little bit later on on this podcast, uh, apply to sects within both denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of more the grouping of the denominations is more a collection of people, and a sect is a little bit more about what they believe. That's not really like the dictionary definition, but it's mm-hmm. kind of yeah. my perceived lived experiences. We all kind of mm-hmm. behave this way in the denomination. When you start um, disagreeing about beliefs, that's when you start dipping your toe into sectarianism. Yeah, yeah. And it can be the smallest things, right? Like you said, if you kind of step back, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways in which you know all these fundamentalist sort of groups uh, are similar. But you ask them, no, we're completely different from these people. You know, they I can't believe you would say that we share anything in common. It's like, well, it's only the small things that like a few things, they would yeah. say they're not small. You know, the, the example I thought of is something like baptism, mm-hmm. you know, for, for church of Christ people, uh, traditionally it was, you have to be baptized as in fully immersed as an adult for the forgiveness of, of your sins. And if you don't check all those boxes, it doesn't count. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure you remember some debates where like some kid was at camp and you saw their elbow was sticking out when they <laughs> baptized, like, Oh, I don't, I don't know if they're saved. They didn't go all the way under. Um, and that one came to mind because uh, at the very end of the series, uh, the Mandalorians are practicing basically like baptism and they don't practice immersion. They just pour water over somebody's head. And they baptize and... children. Oh, children. that's true. Yeah. Well, he was, he may have been the age of accountability. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> if you know, you know, but yeah, I, I thought it was funny that like both Joe and I texted each other after we saw that, like they didn't immerse him. But, like, <laughs> see that even when we've moved past it, like those it's so ingrained that you can't not notice that like they're not practicing this this important thing in the right way uh, any other from your your upbringing where you see the fundamentalism kind of coming out yeah so my mom grew up in the church of christ and my dad was a christian missionary alliance um uh faith background and uh, them being married there was always a little bit of conflict between the two of them with respect mm. to certain beliefs and as i was a teenager they kind of expressed to me like we don't actually talk to each other about certain things because we disagree so strongly on them that they would kind of break our spiritual unity as christians you know and of course as parents and <laughs> as a, yeah. a husband and wife um but i thought that that was really interesting that there's just uh certain things that may seem silly to an outsider that are these deeply held um, correct either practices or correct beliefs between mm-hmm. the two denominations. And a lot of it did end up between being a disagreement between uh, baptism or the effects of the Holy Spirit. Um, my dad was a little bit more on the demons are real side of the spectrum. My mom was a little bit more agnostic to that, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a missionary in a, in a culture that has a lot of um, spiritual components, just because the indigenous cultures there are very mm-hmm. animistic, um, and then there's some syncretism between the animism and the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, you know, has its whole spectrum of saints and <laughs> other, yeah. other um, iconography and all of that, um, it, can, it can just be a bit overwhelming to, to think about all of the different flavors of fundamentalist beliefs that you have to navigate through when you're kind of a part of all four different um, environments or belief systems slash cultures at the same time. On one hand, even though they're both sort of in in the fundamentalist space, they were able to work together, mm-hmm. even though they had to just, just say, right, like, well, we just won't talk about this. You know, if you're an extreme fundamentalist, you would say, no, we have to talk about this and you have to be right. So yeah, you have to come over to my way or your 
yeah. not going to make it. Right. So that that's that's positive. But like you mentioned, also, you know, fundamentalism often wants to isolate and be completely separate from the world and sees itself as against the world or the world is against them. And yet, as you mentioned, well, yeah, but we are part of multiple cultures and they're always going to be interweaving and, and affecting each other, right? We're kind of wanting this, this pure belief that's not affected by anything else other than how we read scripture or the Mandalorian creed. But in reality, it never plays out that, that cleanly because that's, that's just how life is. So uh, there are some strengths to fundamentalism. It might seem surprising to say, but at least we want to think about well, where does this impulse come from? What are there any positive uh, impulses behind uh, this movement? And you know, I mentioned at least for American fundamentalism that that uh, or that flavor of it, it was in some ways established as a reaction to what was going on. I wouldn't say that you know uh, more conservative Christians at the time were being persecuted for their beliefs; they were just feeling challenged. Uh, but when you look, you know, more broadly across history, there are plenty of movements you could define as describe as fundamentalist in some sense. And what you often find in those situations is that these these rules or these beliefs are established during really difficult times. You know, it yes, fundamentalism can be very black and white, but kind of like what you mentioned with liking Star Wars as a kid, sometimes that's helpful. It simplifies a very complex world. Um, and it allows this community to focus on, okay, these are the things that really matter. These are the things that that tie us together. And so all of these these rituals that often serve the purpose of defining who is in and out, I don't know, do you see any positive to having those sort of rituals? I do, yeah. Uh, one thing that comes to mind, so uh, Guatemalan evangelical culture is very, very strongly against drinking and dancing because... Mm -hmm those have a lot of ties, especially going back to the animistic side of things. Those behaviors have ties to connect you to the, the negative spiritual world, the, the demonic spiritual world. There's also the social effects. A lot of um, you know deadbeat fathers, for lack of a better word, who disappear and then come back and they're just completely uh, inebriated. They've been gone for one or two days. Uh, no one knows like if they're okay. Mm. They come back and then they beat their wife and their kids, like really heavy stuff that has strong sociological effects. And so when that is prevalent in the culture, to have a subculture that says, you're essentially, you're a bad person, you're a failed Christian, if you participate in any form of drinking, moderation or not, or mm -hmm. any form of dancing, moderation or not, because it's very hard to do that moderately <laughs> for, for so many people who have grown up with that environment just pervasively. Um, and so it did protect a lot of people from, uh, it strengthened a lot of families. Once people who were deep into drinking kind of committed their lives to Christ in this environment, they cut off drinking, you know, cold turkey and their relationships with their family members and their community noticeably improved. Like it was a, it was such a good thing for so many people. On the other hand, for people like me, where I don't have that problem, I'd be very careful. We even, <laughs> if you've ever had the non-alcoholic sparkling ciders to just celebrate for fun things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we had to make sure that uh, no one saw us unpacking that uh, when we come home from the grocery store, because it would look like a bottle of, it looks like a bottle of real wine. And we didn't want anyone to assume that we were uh, doing anything uncouth, <laughs> yeah. even though, you know, obviously yeah, my dad never had any 
issues with people doubting his uh, ministry or anything like that. Um, and I think it wouldn't have been too big of an issue if they did find out, but just there was that pervasiveness in the culture of like, we really don't want people to think that we're talking out of the other side of our mouth about mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. There's some accountability. It keeps people in check with what, yeah, what they say they believe and what they do. And yeah, the negative side is people are always suspect and always looking for heretics who aren't following the rules. But I mean, rules, having a way of life uh, is not a bad thing. You know, we need that. And sometimes fundamentalism pushes too hard and, and this like nobody's good and we have to have all these rules, but uh, it, it can give that structure. I think that's that's one thing that it offers uh, kind of gives you a box to sort a complicated world into. And it also preserves a sense of community. It's not just, you know, I don't do this, but we are a people who doesn't do this or we practice this, that you know, we don't use instruments in our worship. That was another big Church of Christ thing. Uh, without getting into all the theology behind it, one thing it did, it, this is who we are, right? This It makes us distinct uh, for good or ill, but we kind of know like, okay, this is how we can point to something, you know, because we're embodied human creatures. We need things that we can point to and say, this is who we are. And so something like that practice or how we did baptism is a thing that we could hold on to, to kind of help us define our community. And to prov it also provided, I'm referring to the not using instruments in the music in particular, it provided a very distinct communal ritual to perform, which would be mm -hmm. practicing. Like the, the church community as a whole would come together and practice singing so that the singing could improve, so that the music would be better. Yeah, it's unifying. And that that is a good thing. Rituals, uh, I'm all for rituals and, and what they can do to bring people together and, and give us some sort of identity. And, you know, it, it really matters when this group is out of power, right? If this is an oppressed minority, it's even more important they have rituals and beliefs that give them identity. Now, it can also maintain divisions and keep others out of the group that maybe uh, would like to be included or should be included. But uh, when you're when you're not in power, uh, that that matters a lot. You know, an example I thought of is like the Jewish people in the what we call Second Temple Judaism, which is kind of the period before the New Testament and a little bit after where, you know, I won't go through all the history of the Roman Empire. But one of the reasons that the food laws and circumcision and Sabbath were so important is it gave them that sense of identity when they were under Roman occupation. And that wasn't the only time that that's been the case for the Jewish people, right? It's a common uh, story through their history of, of being oppressed and having these things that they could hold on to, to remind themselves, no, this is who we are, uh, as they get scattered around the world to, to be able to say, no, we are still this people and we have these practices. Could they focus on them in, in the wrong way sometimes? Yeah, I, I think that's why Jesus is so critical of them. But we need to see that they're not inherently negative practices, but they they offered something to the community. Um, I, I read an article this week by Bryant Francis called The Mandalorian Gave Bo-Katan a Story Like No Other. Uh, it was on io9. I was already thinking these things, but I, I read an article that was kind of making the same point. And the author actually is Jewish. He came from more of a secular Jewish background. But, you know, he approached, he's looking at this season of Mandalorian and thinking about some of the same issues in the same way. And he mentions that, yeah, he saw there were a lot of debates in different Jewish groups about how Judaism should be practiced and you know, how you read the Torah, how to, how to, and again, he's coming from a secular point of view, but these rituals still mattered for his identity. 
And one of the things he said, he talks about traditions. All traditions are built on technicalities. Uh, and it's the values of the people who believe in them that give them life, right? So as we've kind of mentioned, and we'll talk about some Mandalorian ones in a minute, traditions are kind of silly sometimes, and there's technicalities of whether or not this should matter or not. Well, that's not the point. It's it's the values that people bring to them, and that's why it can can be life-giving. Traditions can be life-taking, but you know we're seeing that there is a, a power to it. And I think what's important about uh, the traditions and <clears throat> is finding meaning in them. A lot of my frustrations with my fundamentalist upbringing was that the traditions weren't meaningful. So they were life-taking in a way. They weren't life-giving. Yet so many people, uh, you know, childhood friends friend, uh, and family members, they still find incredible meaning in these traditions that I just, even as a kid, I was just like, oh, this doesn't jive with me. I don't feel this uh, connection in this way. Um, mm. And uh, you know, part of growing up is trying to find meaning in life and finding that within your spiritual or religious practice is just as important as in the more secular side of your life. I think having such a large library of traditions, if you will, that a lot of fundamentalist cultures bring to the table makes it so much easier for you to participate with other people and find meaning in that participation. Mm hmm. Yeah, if if the community is willing to talk about this is why this tradition matters and here's what it means and the value in it, then it is positive. But maybe something you were alluding to, or the, you know, at least that I thought of, is so often if you ask, well, why why do we do it this way? It's like, well, that's the right way to do it. This is the yeah. way we've always done it, right? When that's all it is, that's not very life giving. And so if you can dig in a little deeper than just, well, this is what the Bible says, right? But that's so often the only answer that that we want to give. Um, so if you can go deeper with it, which I think very often you can, yeah, there is a lot of value. And so going back to the Mandalorian, they, they don't have a sacred text as far as we can tell, but they do talk about the creed a lot. But one of the characters says, the creed is how we survived. I actually have a clip here where one of the characters known as the armorer explains some of Mandalorian history and how she understands the creed and how it affected how things played out. Bo-Katan Kreese was born of a mighty house, but they lost sight of the way. Her rule ended in tragedy. Only those that walked the way escaped the curse prophesied in the creed. Though our numbers were scattered to the winds, our adherence to the way has preserved our legacy for the generations until we may someday return to our homeworld. So in that article he's again comparing the experience of the mandalorians to the experience of the jewish people uh, again the the creed the beliefs the traditions or how they survived so i wanted to take a minute and just kind of go over some of the mandalorian history uh you know some non-nerds may get bored by this but I, I think it's kind of important for this discussion if we're thinking about where does fundamentalism come from and when can it be helpful and when can it not so now, looking a little like from the outside at Mandalorians and Star Wars, really most people's only exposure would have been Boba Fett. You know, he shows up in Empire Strikes Back and he's wearing that cool helmet. Uh, I don't know. Do you sometimes I feel the only reason people like Boba Fett and the Mandalorians is because he looks so cool. Uh, do you ever get that feeling? Oh, yeah. Especially when it falls in that Sarlacc pit and he just, just <laughs> carves his way out of there a little bit later. I mean, you don't see it in the movies, but um you know, like, oh, this guy's invincible. Like, and he's got that secret service kind of 
feel to it where you can't see where he's looking, how he's looking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes him very ominous. And, it, you know, if you like a, a complex character, I feel like not being able to see someone's face will definitely make that uh, a little bit more complex. Yeah. Or at least you can imagine that it's complex. Uh, yes. <laughs> I know I've talked in here before. I thought Book of Boba Fett, that show was pretty terrible and that there's really not much to his character at all. But you can imagine that he's really cool. And I think that's kind of where if you got, got into like the expanded universe, you know, there are a whole bunch of books and comics and games back in the day that are no longer considered canon. Uh, but they dug a lot into Mandalorian culture. But uh that all kind of got rebooted in what you know I would now call the Filoni verse. Uh, Dave Filoni is one of the key creators of the Mandalorian, and he's also done uh, several of the animated shows uh, like the Clone Wars and Rebels. And uh, I I went back before this season of of Mandalorian started, and I decided I was going to watch all the episodes of those shows that had to do with Mandalore and Mandalorian culture and the dark saber and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the shows are pretty hit and miss because they are made for kids. Uh, but I'll, I'll share a list of uh, some of those key episodes. If other people want to want to catch up, you know, looking broadly at their history, the Mandalorians were a pretty warlike kind of society, kind of tribal uh, different clans that were fighting for a long time. And then they unite under this leader named uh, Tar Vizla. And he has, he's the first Mandalorian to also become a Jedi. And so he builds the Darksaber, right? So it's this weapon that kind of becomes this symbol, almost like a religious symbol of leadership for these people. Uh, and there's a lot of wars with the Jedi. They did not get along. And the Mandalore, their planet kind of gets ruined because of it. Uh, and then you jump ahead to the time of the Clone Wars. So this is like during the prequel movies. Uh, if you go and watch the show, there's been this big shift where the planet has now become very pacifist and kind of non-interventionist. There's a new leader named Duchess Satine Kreese. Uh, she's the sister of Bo-Katan Kreese, who we're going to be talking about. Uh, and she's she's kind of seeing the ways that Mandalorian culture, the way that they've been killing themselves is, is not helpful. And so they need to, to do something different. And she also has a relationship with Obi-Wan Kenobi, he almost left the Jedi to go and be with her, which again, go back to my previous podcast and why the Jedi suck sometimes and their rules about uh, avoiding relationships are not helpful. But at that time, when the majority of the planet is becoming more pacifist and and leaving behind their warlike ways, uh, there were some people who didn't really like that. And so there's a group called the Death Watch, really are basically terrorists who are rejecting that path and are trying to, you know, kind of call Mandalore back to what we used to be, the good old days where we were known as warriors. Um, and so this Death Watch group, Bo-Katan, actually was initially with them. One thing that I thought was really interesting, you go and watch these shows, and some of it may just be because, you know, this was written bef- before the Mandalorian show was created, but this Death Watch group, who are seem very fundamentalist, they take off their helmets. So that shows you that even this, you know, more fundamentalist group at that time uh, didn't have these beliefs that seemed so central to uh, the group that Din Djarin is part of in our in our show. So things continue to not go well for Mandalore. The, the Duchess dies. Uh, Bo-Katan briefly takes over rulership of her planet, but then the Empire pretty much immediately comes to power. And so the the big event that happens after this, the, the Empire kind of retaliates. They get tired of Mandalore always trying to 
become independent. And so they basically just destroy the planet. Uh, Moff Gideon, who's kind of the big bad of the Mandalorian, he's the one that kind of fearheads that that attack. Do you see any similarities to uh, political slash fundamental behaviors and beliefs in church history? Because as you're going through that, uh, you know, obviously fictional history of a fictional universe, there's some strong parallels to how Europe was fighting politically. Mm. Uh, certain people were aligned with certain church beliefs or groups. Um, and while all that's going on, there's literal wars being fought between Christian countries mm. that Islam is now taking over parts of Turkey and parts of Spain and spreading their beliefs. Um, I don't want to draw any correlations to good guys or bad guys <laughs> in mm. that fight, <laughs> but each group thought the other group was the bad guy, just like the empire and rebels slash non-empire folks uh, took advantage of each other's weaknesses during times of infighting. Yeah, right. And what they believe religiously, I don't know if that's always the best word to use in Star Wars because uh, it's it's unclear. But yeah, those cultural beliefs are tied to political beliefs, right? We should be in charge of everything because we believe correctly. Fundamentalism often has a political side, and uh, we may get into that in, in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, the, there was some sense of right that, that Death Watch group, they want to be in charge, but it's because we have the correct beliefs about what it means to be Mandalorian. And these people have rejected uh, the the correct way. Oh, any other ways that you see the the different Mandalorian clans, you know, as we get to the the series, reacting to this history, responding to it. It's so like I mentioned the the Children of the Watch that Din Djarin is part of. They're kind of descended from that Death Watch. Um, Bo-Katan was with them, but then she split off at one point uh, and and kind of has her own group. Uh, but I don't know how do you how do you see that history impacting the way that characters in the show talk about what it means to be Mandalorian? There's two different ways of the way that start to come out. Um, I would definitely think that Bo-Katan's side is um, Mandalorians are like a cultural identity. Um, mm -hmm. They have a set of core values about their community and obviously trying to get, win back their home planet um, and, and finding unity in these are the things we have in common, uh, not the things that set us apart. Whereas uh, I feel like Din Djarin's sect uh, it starts out being intentionally exclusive. They think that people who take off their helmets have committed a really serious and egregious sin. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, um, and you kind of see this in, in some of the Jewish diaspora after the destruction of the temple, but uh, Din Djarin's sect believes that the only way you can redeem yourself is to become baptized. Mm -hmm. um, ironically, through immersion. No, that's um, true. When, complete when immersion. That, that's what they said. The that's what the armorer told Din Djarin he had to do. He had to go bathe in, not be bathed by uh, the waters <laughs> of the, the sacred um, uh, smelter. I can't remember the name. Oh, the um, Great Forge. Thank you. The Great Forge. Uh, I like sacred smelter, though. That's got a nice that's alliteration like to it. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, since that's on Mandalore and Mandalore was destroyed, there's no way for Din Djarin to redeem himself. Mm -hmm. Um, without revealing any spoilers, there Ninjaran finds a way to redeem himself and and make every party happy, but uh, it comes at a cost to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the fundamentalism often does not make it easy to get yourself right. And yeah, we'll talk about the armor in a minute. Of like, what is she actually asking? What does she really want? It's not always clear. So yeah, this this idea of fundamentalism. It's not in Star Wars. It's not just with the Mandalorians. I mean. We could probably go down a whole rabbit hole of 
uh, the the Jedi, uh, the dark side and the light side, that's that's pretty fundamentalist, right? Because it's often a black and white way of looking at it. Uh, I think you mentioned the Obi-Wan's line, uh, only Sith deals in absolutes is an absolutist <laughs> statement. <laughs> so uh, it it's very present in all, in, you know, again, the Jedi are kind of a religious movement. So it makes sense that they would be pretty hard line about some of these things. Any other ways you see the Jedi carrying out some of these strengths and flaws of fundamentalism? Yes. Um, I, I personally relate to Mace Windu a little bit. Um, and if you go into the the lore behind the color of his lightsaber, for example, uh, he picks a color that's not light side or dark side. It's kind of in the middle. And he chooses a fighting style that um, in order to you know, amp yourself up to participate in that intensity of fighting. You have to put yourself dangerously close to the dark side. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's like a very convicted person. He, he, uh, like a good Jedi, he's very interested in defending the innocent um, and, and the oppressed. And he does that extremely well. Um, you see in uh, when he dies, like he's doing it to save innocent lives. Um, and um, he kind of, has this wise counsel where you go to certain Jedi for certain advice when you're struggling with some problem. We see that with Anakin and, and Obi-Wan and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Yoda's got his old wise sayings and, and, but it is, it is also a little bit more black and white Whereas Mace Windu kind of tries to get to the heart of the problem. And mm -hmm. um, he, he approaches things differently from other Jedi on the council. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're always outliers, but, uh, that's often not the case. These movements mm -hmm. tend towards our side and the wrong side. Um, so yeah, light and dark kind of makes that pretty clear. And uh, I mean, you could go way back and look at all the history <laughs> of the Jedi. And I know it's changed multiple times that they've retconned things, but there were difficult times that, you know, cr helped create some of the beliefs of the Jedi order. But then by the time we're seeing them, like in the prequels, uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, they kind of become irrelevant and just too stuck on their rules to really see the effect that they're having right so it's those traditions for the sake of tradition rather than what's going to be life-giving and that's part of the reason that they uh, get wiped out because um, they're just too stuck in the way we've always done things instead of seeing what do we need to do and so that kind of gets towards the flaws of fundamentalism and we've already been talking about some of this but going back to thinking specifically about mandalorians uh, the children of the watch, the the helmets on group, uh, <laughs> their creed is not actually representative of historical Mandalorian culture. You know, you watch the show and you don't know anything else about Mandalorians. You would think, oh, this is how Mandalorians are. They just never take their helmets off. Boba but Fett fact, never did. Yeah, that's true. Boba Fett didn't. Well, until you watch the show about him. And he <laughs> yes, does and then the he does all the time. <laughs> uh, but really like that, their specific group, their movement is only like decades old. It, we don't see exactly how it formed, but it seems like it was after their planet was destroyed in this great purge is probably when they developed this idea of true Mandalorians keep their helmets on all the time and, you know, the other, all the other stuff that goes with it. But that seems to be part of the deepest held belief of, of their creed. But then by the time you get to the second season, well, we're seeing other Mandalorians who believe differently. And in the case of Bo-Katan, is kind of the the main leader of this other group. Well, she kind of has a deeper legitimate claim to be a true Mandalorian. Right? Her sister was the ruler of the planet, and uh, she took over that status after her sister died. Uh, and 
you know, on the other side of fundamentalism, this group tends to focus a little more on, you know, pure blood. Are you really descended from Mandalorians? Not hard to see examples in history of where uh, pure blood sort of fundamentalism becomes very dangerous and violent. And they also have a lot of beliefs around the dark saber that like this, this weapon is not just a weapon, right? It's a symbol of, of leadership. And what's interesting is the uh, Din Djarin's group, the children of the watch don't really seem to care about the dark saber too much. Um, I mean, the armor knows what it is. So there is Paz Vizsla that challenges uh, Din Djarin for it once he gets it. But it seemed like the dark saber is not as important to them as, as the helmets are. And so that all kind of points to what we've said that traditions at times can be silly. You know, I remember seeing a comment after one of the episodes where uh, it's it's kind of funny how seriously Din Djarin will take the the helmets rule, whereas with the dark saber he's like, guys, just take it, right? It, it doesn't matter who, right? These are just silly rules. Like, you can't see that you're you're doing one thing on one hand and the opposite on the other. Yeah, for Din, he has to go be baptized in a very particular water that's inaccessible now. Mm-hmm. And yet when it comes to like, oh, I can just give the 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 true owner of this Darksaber, I can just hand it to them. They're like, oh, no, no, no. You got to fight to the death for it. Like, yeah. like it's it's the same thing. But from his perspective, it's like Saber is silly. You know, what you have is silly. What you believe or what you do is what's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Bo-Katan and their group would kind of be the opposite. Like, yeah, you can take your helmet off. Who cares? But the Darksaber can only be passed in this certain way. It's this tendency that we see in in modern fundamentalism. No, this thing is intensely serious, but this thing you believe is is silly. It's like, well, if you stand back, they're kind of both silly. And so it's, you know, well, what what is the situation? What are the needs of the present? Um, but if you can't get past that, it it doesn't make much sense. And also, you know, just one of the things that fundamentalism makes difficult is like who's in who's truly in the community. You know, Din Djarin is not born a Mandalorian. They call him a, a foundling because when he was young, uh, Mandalorians found him and he was orphaned. And so they kind of brought him in. He was converted into this group. You know, I think of like, again, in the, the Second Temple period, you would have Gentiles uh, who would convert to Judaism. Uh, they would be called God-fearers. You see a few reference in the New Testament. And it's like, well, okay, you are part of our community, but not really because you weren't born like we were, even if you went and got circumcised, well, that's good because you need to do that, but you're a little bit suspect because you're not truly one of us. And you see you're 98% Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so like on both sides, then jarring kind of gets that right. That the, uh, you see both children of the watch and Bo-Katan's group. They're like, Oh, you're not really Mandalorian. Right. And in that case, it's because of, of birth. Right, so there's a million ways in which you could say, "Well, you're not really Mandalorian," uh, but who decides? We see the same phenomenon in in church history, right? Well, who's a true Christian? Well, it's Christians who believe exactly like I do, and if you don't, then you're not a Christian, right? That's that's fundamentalist kind of thinking. And there's even like the no true Scotsman. Are you familiar with this this idea? Yes, that's one of my favorites to point out. All right, you want to you want to explain what that is? Sure thing. Uh, so the no true Scotsman fallacy is uh, where, um, think of uh, someone wearing a kilt and uh, also playing uh, the trumpet. And someone goes, well, no true Scotsman would play the trumpet while wearing a kilt. 
And it just so happens that the guy's passport says Scotland. Um, so is he a true Scotsman or not? Because his passport says he's Scottish, but mm -hmm. you think he's not? Because in your mind, only a Scotsman can do these particular things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to play bagpipes. Mm -hmm. Whereas in front of you, there's clear evidence to the contrary. He's both Scottish and playing the, the horn. So how do you reconcile that cognitive dissonance? Yeah, right. Like when someone makes has a category and says, oh, you know, here's what people in this category do. It's like, well, this person is not doing that, but they are in the category. And you just kind of try and redefine it without taking it seriously. But but that being said, uh, no true Star Wars fan actually enjoys the first three movies. Um, I do think we need to make that pretty clear. <laughs> and yeah, we see this in all sorts of ways. Well, a true American believes this. Well, I don't believe that. And I was born here. So, you know, but think of all the ways uh, on on from various perspectives that that happens or the, the things that people would say make someone not really a Christian, even though they claim Christianity and go to church and worship Jesus. Well, no, they're not true Christians because they're not Christians like I say. So who gets to define it? You know, that that's the one of the biggest dangers, I think, is it it's always trying to limit the group and exclude people because the the viewpoint of fundamentalism is primarily against others, that you're always seeing yourself as this a minority, as being oppressed, as you're being persecuted. Well, sometimes you're not. I mean, again, just thinking about the world today, what happens when fundamentalist groups become the power, when they gain political power? I mean, I, I think this pretty clearly is is shaping uh, the political landscape now. People that they have this fear-based persecution complex, and yet they have the power to, you know, put their people on the Supreme Court and make decisions. You know, there's this kind of an intentional lack of awareness of how much power you actually have to, to say that we don't have any power and yet we're going to enforce all these things on other people. Well, that's just, that's just not true. And it's expecting others to adhere to this very narrow view that you have instead of acknowledging there might be other ways to do it. It doesn't allow for that kind of freedom. I don't, do you see any other negative outgrowths of fundamentalism in the world today? So in, in politics, there's this concept of the tyranny of the majority, where um, in a population group, if more people have a belief in uh, of some sort that a smaller group doesn't, in a de democratic setting, the majority always wins, and they can always kind of step on or suppress the the preferences or beliefs of the minority. Um, and yet when fundamentalism gains power, you have the inverse. You have the tyranny of the minority, where mm -hmm. the people in power, even though the majority of the democracy doesn't want certain things, um, because they're in conflict with the fundamentalist beliefs, they tend to be subject to those fundamentalist beliefs, even if they don't personally believe them. Yeah. So it's really not a democracy anymore. It's no, this is the right way to do it based on how we read our sacred texts or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, sacred text being the Bible or the Constitution. And and so it doesn't allow for hearing uh, the the variety of voices that that do exist. And so again, it's it's kind of blinding yourself to what's really going on in in the broader world. So how do we move forward? Well, we'll go back to Mandalore. Uh, what can they do to move past this this fundamentalism? And and I guess kind of the question of do we see that happening, uh, especially in the third season? You know, I think Bo-Katan is kind of the, the main character that we see this happening through. 
And I would kind of define her as, well, to use, you know, modern popular religious language, she is kind of deconstructed in the sense of she is a Mandalorian. She's grown up um, in a position of privilege, in fact, and saw uh, all of all of what was happening and and where these beliefs led. And yet she's seen the ways that the creed or Mandalorian culture has fallen short. You know, she gained the Darksaber, this important religious symbol, and then immediately everything fell apart. And so that kind of, you know, even though she still is drawn to it and sees value in it, she also has enough awareness to realize, okay, this doesn't, it's not magic. It's not just going to, if you do the right things and follow the right rules according to the creed, then everything is is going to work out. So she's torn between wanting to lead her people and restoring them, but also seeing all the flaws in, in how they've lived. And yet, I, I won't get too spoilery, but she does kind of have a, a religious experience, I think, early on in the series. And that kind of, I think, reinvigorates her desire to put value in her culture and, and help her people. But And unify the Mandalorians who have different beliefs. She yeah. got she got to see some of the value um, or find some of the meaning, sorry, in these other beliefs that she didn't previously have. Yeah, like she, she spends times with with different groups mm -hmm. and and takes their beliefs seriously, uh, yeah. even though she doesn't always understand them. Uh, she wants to see why does this matter to them. So, thinking more broadly, do you see any ways in which like questioning beliefs or trying to leave behind some of those fundamentalist attitudes can actually make someone a better leader? either politically or spiritually? Yes. As a leader in particular, um, if you don't understand other groups that you may have to lead, it won't make you an effective leader. And it, it, particularly in something that's more political, like Bo-Katan's position, she needs the support of everyone. And so if she doesn't understand what the more extremist subgroups believe, and even though she doesn't believe them, she can at least honor them um, mm. respectfully, um, you know, so long as they're not stepping on, <laughs> on anyone else and oppressing someone else, she is able to navigate that to gain their support, which is absolutely critical by the finale. Like she would not be able to get to what she wants to do without a lot of help from the people that maybe weren't enemies, but they definitely didn't get along before. Yeah. And even like they don't, they still don't agree, but she's yeah. able to kind of hold, hold them together. And like you said, see why this matters to these more extreme, extreme people. On the other hand, you also have the armorer. She's kind of the leader of the children of the watch. And she's, she's the one that's always saying, here's what the creed is. And here's what you have to do. And yet I don't, it feels maybe like there was a little bit of a shift in her in this season. That's one of the things that I, I think was not totally clear. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? Is this yeah. ambiguity or is this bad writing? I think uh, it's bad writing. I'm a yeah. little pessimistic on that. Uh, <laughs> again, having having been fully immersed, no pun intended, in the fundamentalist culture, leaders who enforce that level of fundamentalism don't usually change their minds. I do think the mm -hmm. writers were trying to shoot for, um, you know, maybe behind the scenes, you don't see it in the show, but their exposure to mm -hmm. Bo-Katan's participation in their culture maybe showed them that this isn't the way, this is more of a way, like maybe there are ways mm -hmm. a little better, but there are other legitimate ways. And that the show just doesn't devote any time to that. It was just kind of like brushed past, which made me a little unhappy, but at the same time, making a show about fundamentalism, 
might not get all the rave reviews that the Mandalorian <laughs> gets from Star Wars fans. Yeah, right. It does feel like she moved a little too quickly. Like, you know what? It's okay to have different beliefs. Like you said, that that doesn't seem realistic to what we see and how fundamentalism tends to act. But for the sake of the story, it kind of needed to. So you're just like, yeah, okay, this is fine. So I was, it was very confusing what, how she changes her mind about some of the helmet stuff, at least for Bo-Katan. So again, we're not spoiling the end, but you know, there seems to be some sort of peace that comes between these different groups, but I don't know. Do you think it'll work out going forward? Any guesses for what's next for Mandalore? I will not be surprised if in a later season, there's a little bit more infighting between the groups. Once they've become comfortable and they've established their presence and kind of regained their power a little bit on their corner of the world, they might start um, dividing a little bit back along those sectarian lines. And mm. I'm sure some enemy will be able to exploit that and cause a crisis. And they'll have to realize that they're stronger together than they are apart. Yeah. Which is, that's kind of what the big picture story of this one, but unfortunately history shows us, both in Star Wars and in the real world, uh, that stronger together mindset, it's hard to maintain that. And unfortunately, the the sequel trilogy in some ways has kind of ruined a lot of the storytelling possibilities, I think, because, well, we know where it's going eventually. So whatever happens with these remnants of the Empire, well, it's, it's going to turn to the First Order eventually anyway, which kind of unfortunate, but that's how it is. And not to be an ambassador for a whole nother show, but I think you start to see that in Andor as well. Mm-hmm. There, There is this sense of like, we're all stronger together, but there's at such an early stage of the rebellion that they're, a lot of people don't realize that they're still very focused on their political infighting. Like they want power within their own rebel group that the mm-hmm. empire could just crush immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can see that kind of being recycled in a later season of the Mandalorian if some bad guy group uh, gains significant power. Maybe it's a new Republic, you know, be a little more oppressive, Mm -hmm. uh, uncomfortable with the Mandalorian presence. Who knows? But uh, that is a risk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think we mentioned Andor and how great it is. And yeah, that's definitely a show where it's like, you're not going to have different groups or groups that kind of have the same goals, but different beliefs just very quickly. Like, oh, well, we'll just get over it. Like what kind of happened on the Mandalorian? That's one of the things that's great about Andor is saying like, even though they have the same goal, it's so hard to get people on the same page when you have different beliefs about how to get there. Uh, Whether you're like hardcore fundamentalist or not, um, yeah, getting past those differences is, is tricky. But it is important, again, going outside of the world of Star Wars and thinking about in our world and in the religious world, how do we move towards that? How do we move forward after fundamentalism? You know, this is the way is the phrase that gets used in the show. But how do we get towards this is a way? I don't know why it is that we always want that definitive article. Uh, Maybe it's just for our own sake. It's to say, no, I know I'm right because I have found the way and not just just one of them. And, you know, in in Christianity, one of the main places that people often go to to make that more fundamentalist argument is something Jesus says in uh, the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way. I mean, at face value, just taking it like that, it seems pretty exclusive. But that's not the only way you have to read that statement. For one thing, Jesus is answering a question. And the question is not, Jesus, are there many ways to God? Uh, Because when we ask it in that way, which is often what I see Christians doing, then the answer is no, it's just me. 
But the question he's actually answering is from his disciples who are concerned that Jesus is going to God and they're not sure if they know the way to God. And so Jesus is saying, no, you do know. And it's it's through me. A way I understand it that I think is more inclusive is saying, if we're saying Jesus is the way, it means that whenever someone finds God, uh, finds access to the divine or has some sort of religious experience, Christ is in that somehow. You and I have talked about Richard Rohr a lot yeah, and his ideas uh, about the universal Christ of Christ in all things, uh, that that Christ is at work, whether we name it or recognize it or not, which you see that in Jesus' own ministry when he talks, you know, like the sheep and the goats, people are doing Christ-like things, helping the the least of these, and they don't know that they're doing it for Jesus, but that's okay. It's uh, Christ is in that still. And so that, I think that's a helpful way forward instead of thinking, okay, are they following the right path as I understand it because they're they're making these faith claims, or is it well, I look at their life, I look at the fruit of how they're living, and it seems like somehow God is at work in that. Uh, that's, to me, even taking what seems like the most exclusive statement, it doesn't have to be uh, as exclusive. In the same way, also in the Gospel of John, he talks about, you know, I am the gate, um, right? And that's not, I'm the gatekeeper, as in I'm going <laughs> to keep people out, which is usually the role that the church has taken. But again, if you're accessing abundant life, it's happening through him in, in some sense. If if all things are made through him, he is in all things. How could it be any other way? That's not to like try and import my beliefs on everyone else and say, well, I know that you're really a Christian. Uh, but but you know, this kind of deeper, more contemplative approach to the presence of Christ. I think another thing that's necessary to move past fundamentalism is just a better acknowledgement of of history and having some humility in that area. It hasn't always been done this way. We we say that, like, we've always done it like this. Well, you're really just basing that off of your experience, and you're the farthest back you're probably going is like your grandparents and how they did church or whatever. It hasn't always been that way. This is something I see plenty from more fundamentalist groups. They'll say, well, historic Christianity has always believed, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll insert a belief that if you just look at the history of it, it's only been around for less than 100 years or so. And so we just have to be able to admit, well, we may not be the first to to do this, to to think that we got it right. There may be other approaches. And I don't know about you, but yeah, we didn't learn hardly any church history. We just said, well, they were all wrong. We got it right. So just <laughs> yeah. do it this way. But to see, oh, actually, they probably maybe got some things right that we've missed, or at least there are gifts there that in the broader tradition, not just our tradition. I don't know. What else do you see is is helpful for moving forward and and where does history come in to all of this yeah what you're saying about how we've always done it this way i think fundamentalism often forgets to include people who don't participate in it uh yet they're part of the historical record if you will mm -hmm. and so to say that there were no true uh, in some ways fundamentalists saying that this is the only way and we've always done it this way excludes the valid Christianity of people who didn't see that thing for what it was back a while back. Um, I guess one example in my personal journey was uh, deconverting from the thought of eternal conscious torment uh, in the concept of hell. Uh, and you have lots of early church fathers who bickered over that and fought over that, you know, intellectually. And some believe that 
eternal conscious torment was a thing and others didn't. Some believe that marriage was good. Others believe that marriage was horrible. And you kind of see that transition throughout the historical record, um, largely influenced by politics and the cultural norms of the time. Like in the medieval era, for example, women actually had a lot of power if mm -hmm. they were single. But once they got married, they were kind of seen as lesser than. Um, and, you know, I'd always, you know, how do you reconcile that with uh, both, um, you know, Paul's call to not get married so you can serve God better. And then a lot more of the modern evangelical calls of like, you can't serve in church as a woman unless you're married uh, to someone like as a single, you're kind of a single woman, you're kind of a danger to the church mm -hmm. because you can, you know, mess up the the structure. You got to make sure that you're married to a man before you can really participate. That wasn't the case, you know, a thousand years ago. And who's to say that those Christians who believe the same elements of the Nicene Creed as a modern fundamentalist would, how can you say that they're not true Christians? Yeah. So just more awareness, um, seeing, okay, this, this worked in their time. Maybe it doesn't work now. Maybe it does, but, but having that, that openness, fundamentalism doesn't have much room for that. And I, I think that's so key to see, well, we can see the value in the way that we've done things. Our rituals do matter. Uh, rituals are good. When they're used to draw people together and form community, I think that is powerful and worth. Uh, you know, there are some voices that you just need to trash it all and just get rid of these things. Well, there's, there is good in that, and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And yet, when those rituals are used to exclude, as as they often have been, that's when we're seeing the negative side. So, what can we hold on to of of our history? but not in such a rigid way that it excludes the real experience of, of real people. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up our conversation about that. Um, happy to hear any comments that people have. If you liked or didn't like the Mandalorian, why you think we are not true star Wars fans, any <laughs> opinions expressed. Uh, I say that we still are. All right. Well, uh, we're moving now to the end of our show. And one of the segments we, we love to do here is our pop culture consolations and desolations. So this is where we take uh, the spiritual practice of the examination of consciousness from Ignatius of Loyola to think about what's been life-giving and not life-giving in the world of pop culture. So Joe, what's something uh, that's been a pop culture consolation for you recently? Oh man, the last two episodes of Ted Lasso have been consolations. They have yes. been some of the sweetest, most comforting bits of modern TV that I've seen in a while. And I feel like every season of Ted Lasso has that. So season three in particular just kind of hit me at the right place at the right time. And, you know, it just kind of felt like being curled up on a couch feeling absolutely safe with you know, your best friend or your family member or whatever. But you're seeing that through these characters' eyes. Yeah, I, I definitely would second that for those last couple episodes. And up to that point, I was like, I don't know, is this show kind of losing some of its magic? Um, even like part of that uh, second to last episode, I was feeling that. And then like he has this speech at the end and like, nope, oh, OK, this is this is amazing. And I was crying. Yep, <laughs> I almost <laughs> cried. <laughs> Ted Lasso, still good. So one of my consolations this week was a new album by the band called The National. I, I know I've talked about them before kind of an indie rock group that's been around for, for quite a while now, uh, but they've gotten a little bit more attention recently because Taylor Swift has been working with one of the members of the band, Aaron Dessner, uh, as one of her producers. Uh, she's on the album. Phoebe Bridgers is on the album. Sufjan Stevens is on the album. So it's kind of like uh, hitting all of my bases. 
and they've really leaned into their brand of being sad dad music, <laughs> which I, I actually got the hoodie that says that for, for Christmas. So yeah, that is, you listen to much of the, many of the episodes where I talk about music, that is definitely one of my vibes. Uh, but their most recent album, the first two pages of Frankenstein is great. Um, I'm going to play a little bit of a song called Your Mind is Not Your Friend, which uh, is pretty relevant to the experience of many people I know, the way that you can't always trust the negative things your own brain is talking about you. This is a song that Phoebe Bridgers is on. So let's hear a little bit of this song. Don't you understand? What desolations did you have this week? Anything that felt kind of life-taking or at least you wouldn't recommend to others, Joe? I, I don't think I have a true desolation, but I have a disappointment in that um, I finally got around to deciding I wanted to watch John Wick 4 after enough friends highly recommended it. And I can't find a showing in um, Dolby Digital um, and or IMAX within four hours of my house because of the uh, D&D movie, which kicked it out of those theaters prematurely because everyone said, you got to go see it in Dolby Digital and or IMAX if you have access to IMAX. It's just fantastic. So um, I'm kind of sad because I'm just going to not, I'm not too big into going to the theater anymore because I mm -hmm. feel like even though I don't have a good home theater system, it's good enough that most movies play and look great. And it's very relaxing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I saw, for example, Avatar 2 in the theaters in its full glory. I would never watch it at home. And so I, I'm reserving my theater participation for things that I cannot replicate at home. Um, and I just don't see the point in paying $10 for something that uh, I can watch at home for yeah, the same amount of money. It's be on streaming and, in a month. So exactly. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. It's not a true desolation. I will be watching it. I think I'll enjoy it. But it's not uh, the way it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> This is not the way. It is not the way. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me, Desolation is something I've kind of mentioned before is just like bad streaming movies. Um, you know, they're hit and miss, but we, my wife and I wanted to watch the new Ghosted movie that's on Apple TV with Chris Evans and Anna de Armas. We did not even make it all the way through and just like this, this is not good. Um, and I love Chris Evans. Generally, I would say he's my favorite Chris of the pop culture Chris's. He was not the right Chris for this role because he's meant to be kind of a lovable loser and he doesn't doesn't carry that vibe. Some of the worst special effects that I've seen. So uh, there were some fun <laughs> cameos about halfway through, but otherwise it's just did not work. And I don't know, it just feels like some of these streaming movies are the equivalent of made for TV movies. But it's crazy that the, the level of movie stars that they get in them sometimes. So, yeah, I wouldn't really recommend Ghosted. Another one that. You know, this kind of could be a consolation and a desolation is uh, the game Marvel Snap, which is a mobile game. I enjoy it, but it kind of has taken over my life and I spend too much time on it. And <laughs> it's a good game in the sense that like it's a card game where you're, you know, you get a hand and you are just playing one other person. Matches only last like five minutes or less. So it's really quick. Um, but, you know, it can kind of get a little addictive and my wife would probably tell you I spend too much time playing it. So 
consolation that it's fun desolation that i get sucked in too much but hey if you play marvel snap let me know and uh, we can <laughs> we can compare decks and stuff all right well that's that's about all for the show well thanks for being on the show this week joe uh, may the fourth be with you <laughs> and also with you well now we need to take a minute to get serious we talked today about how there are many ways to be a mandalorian there are many ways to be a christian and there are many ways to be a listener to this podcast. But despite what we've said in this episode, if you are going to be a true fan of Pop Culture Pastor, will you share it? Will you like? Will you subscribe? Will you tell your friends? Will you leave a review? Yes, anyone can claim that they are a fan of this show, but if you really are, this is the way. This is the creed. This is the way, the truth, and the life of a podcast listener. As always, this show is produced by me. Big thanks again to my guest, Joe Quigley, for being on the show today. Our theme music is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. Our show comes out every other Thursday on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, you can follow me, though, in the meantime, on Instagram and Facebook at Pop Culture Pastor for more. Join us in two weeks when we're going to be talking about the Christian worship music industry. But as for now, you are dismissed. Go in peace. <laughs>